E-A-B-L-E-S. Ebels. Remember that name because if you suffer from chronic joint and muscle pain like me, then Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil is your answer to your prayers. The Ebels story began with the search for something natural to help manage chronic migraines. But Ebels helps more than just migraines. From managing chronic pain, anxiety, depression, and more, Ebels is truly a game changer in the natural alternatives to big pharma drugs. And yours truly, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, can indeed vouch for the quality of Ebels. Having a herniated disc in my back, whew, coupled with years of sports injuries, I was struggling to find something, anything to help manage my pain. That is until Ebels. With the best quality product and customer service in the industry, Ebels Broad Spectrum CBD Oil and Ebels Freeze Gel easily stand above all the competition. And right now, Ebels is offering a special discount to all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience on all orders. All you have to do is head to Ebels.com and use promo code TB. NS, the Brian Nichols Show, right? TBNS at checkout. That's it. Discount applied. Again, the code is TBNS at checkout to start managing your pain today with the highest quality CBD on the market. One more time, that is code TBNS at checkout. And now, on to the show. Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At the Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Wednesday, folks. Brian Nichols here on the Brian Nichols Show. Yes, Brian Nichols here, humble host of the Brian Nichols Show. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode. Yes, last week we had Angela McArdle. She Last week, last episode, my goodness, three times a week here on the Brian Nichols Show. Still got to get used to that. But uh, last episode on Monday, Angela McArdle, she is running for LP chair in 2022. She was on the show to discuss, obviously, that candidacy, but looking forward into 2024, how libertarians can actually get some people at the top of our ticket to help us get some notoriety and some name recognition out there. And returning to the show today to continue that conversation from a more conservatarian approach is Hannah Cox. Hannah Cox is the host of BASE, and she does amazing work over at Fee. Uh, National Review, Newsmax, etc., etc., uh, and Hannah really focuses a lot on criminal justice reform. So today, Hannah joins the show, yes, to discuss 2024 and how we can have some electoral success, reaching out to yes, those disaffected conservatarians, but also discussing how we we've had some real success from a criminal justice reform standpoint as we go forward post 2020 elections. So without further ado, on to the show, Hannah Cox returning to the Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here. Absolutely, Hannah, you have been so busy. It over the past, I don't know, it's been like, what, a year since you were last year in the show? And I, it, uh, okay, honestly, let's be real. A year in a real time is, is like, what, three years COVID time? So it, it feels like it's been forever since we last spoke. So talk to us. It's been a, a while since you've been on the show. COVID and all, what's been going on in the life of Hannah Cox? Yeah, it, it does feel like a long time. It's been a whirlwind of a year in some ways, but also it, it moves so slow and so much happens. It's just the weird timing of 2020. Everything feels sort of off kilter. Um, I am still running conservatives concerned about the death penalty as their senior national manager, but we have been under a travel ban since March. So usually I would be traversing the country 
talking to people in different states and lobbying and, and speaking, and that's all come to a screeching halt. So that's been kind of weird having to transition to more online type work, doing a lot of Zoom, um, and trying to just really figure out how we advance policy in this new era. Um, yeah. But that's still been going well. We're, we're lining up and it looks like Wyoming's going to be moving legislation next year that's poised to be successful. There's a lot of movement in Ohio. So things are still happening um, in that regard. And it's been a big year for criminal justice reform. So that's all very encouraging. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for sure. It's a criminal justice reform has been like one of the things I'm actually surprised across the board that we've seen such a push on. Can you can you maybe dig into some wins that we've had? I, I mean, I, to start off talking about conservatives concern, that's that's definitely your baby, right? And and that's we've had you in the show multiple times to discuss that and, and the death penalty. But I think just looking at criminal justice reform across the board, especially looking at ending a very uh, archaic war on drug policies across the nation, we've seen that win after win state by state. Hannah, you want to dig into some of those uh, wins for us? Yeah, well, you know, I think beneath the radar, criminal justice reform has really been having a zeitgeist moment for several years. But a lot of Americans were just not aware of that because it was happening at the state level. And let's be honest, most Americans don't pay attention to what happens at the state level. And so unless so something sad, happens, so true. it's just not on their radar. But yeah, I mean, we've really seen Republicans, Democrats, libertarians, uh, progressives all come together and, and actually build tremendous coalitions at the state level and really get a lot done. Uh, we've certainly been a part of that. We have overturned the death penalty in a state each year for the past two years, first with New Hampshire, where we actually um, even were successful in overriding a governor's veto, which is very hard to do. Uh, and then earlier this year, right before COVID hit in Colorado. So we're down to only half the country with active death penalty systems at this point. And we've got about 10 states that consistently have Republican and Democrat sponsored bills. So bipartisan bills to repeal the death penalty. And I think we're, we're going to see more of those have successful movements in the near future. So that's been going well in that regard. Um, but I think in 2020 as a whole, criminal justice reform really sort of hit this crescendo moment this summer where I think for the first time it became mainstream and I, I all of a sudden saw people who had never cared about my line of work before, had never really been engaged on this issue, starting to pay attention, starting to really become hyper aware of the corruption in our system, of the racial bias, of the injustice, and really start to demand change. And that was it was so exciting to witness and watch because I think um for a movement to have success, you know, you have to lay the foundation first. You have to build support. You have to really um, educate people. And what we saw this year was that we had sort of hit that moment where we were starting to pick up steam. And we saw that continue through the ballot box last week. Um, there were a number of criminal justice reform measures that were successful. There was not a single um, war on drugs amendment that failed every time voters were presented with the option to legalize cannabis. Uh, they chose to do so. And then in Oregon, we even saw them go a step further following in the footsteps of Portugal, who has seen tremendous success um, in their drug policy by decriminalizing all drugs and moving those resources towards a treatment-focused approach. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited about what Oregon's doing. I think we're going to see really cool stuff coming out of there. And hopefully, if it's successful, we'll see other states uh, follow that model as well. But not just within the war on drugs. You know, We also saw a lot of district attorneys who had not been reform-minded lose their seats. That's great. They should. Um, we've seen uh, a lot of, of criminal, I'm sorry, of, of civilian oversight um, boards either be put into place or given um, better 
um, accountability measures by the voters to start really watching what police are doing and, and holding them accountable and trying to really clean up some of the corruption and brutality we see in that system. So mm-hmm. um, at almost every turn, it seemed voters chose criminal justice reform when they were given the option. And, you know, I think uh, at the top of the ticket, even we saw both Joe Biden and President Trump vying for who was, you know, most pro criminal justice reform, even though those are two people that both have a pretty checkered background and, and at times even present on criminal justice reform. They they recognize it's popular. They recognize it, that something voters want and they were trying to earn that uh, position. Yeah. Can you actually maybe expound a little bit upon that? Because obviously, you know, we're sitting here, it looks like we have President Biden. Now, obviously, there's still a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes legally um, as we record here today on the 10th. But, you know, right now it, it does appear that it's going to be President Biden. Could you maybe speak to maybe... Yes, we, we look at his past crime bill support and, and really his championing is, is a really negative on his, his candidacy. And I would say, is there any positives, Hannah, that we can look to as a Joe Biden president as he pertains to criminal justice reform? Yeah, well, you know, Biden certainly has been an architect of the criminal justice system of mass incarceration. He supported the war on drugs. He has a very bad history on this, as does Kamala Harris. That being said, they ran on a platform that is very pro-reform. I see a lot to like within the Biden-Harris platform when it comes to criminal justice reform. Now, I don't know if they both really genuinely had a change of heart and have really had a conversion on this issue, or if they're they're doing that because they recognize they have to to win and that's what the voters want. Um, But either way, I think if he does end up being the president, and it does appear that he is going to, I know there's some things still going on, but they don't really seem very likely to succeed then I think we are going to have an administration that the very least has an open door and an open ear on these policies that is going to know that its base is going to demand even more criminal justice reform than perhaps they've laid out. And so I think we could see some really good things happen. And as I wrote in one of my articles for Newsmax this week, you know, I believe in redemption. I'm in this work because I believe in second chances. I believe people can uh, you know, do horrible things and still find redemption and still make amends and, and come back and, and do meaningful things in their future. And, and I don't just feel that way about people who spent time behind bars. I extend that to people who spent it under oath as well. So I think we're right to scrutinize their records. I think we're right to uh, be skeptical, skeptical and to seek to hold them accountable to that. But all in all, I'm hopeful for some good changes under them if, if they end up being in there. And you you started touching on the article you wrote there at Newsmax, a great article, by the way. And actually, I, I had that as something I wanted to bring up. The article is always rooting for redemption, ex-criminals and politicians. I would ask you, too, did the, the cancel culture of 2020 inspire you at all? Because I'm seeing that across the board. There, there seems to be this mass rejection of this. And actually, it's funny. Brad Palumbo was out on the show last week, and we discussed this as well. Uh, the 2020 election was a mass rejection of this this identity politics, this this cancel culture, and it seems like your average person's kind of done with it. And we want your average person out there to be able to not be stuck in this box. To your point, right? We don't want somebody to feel that if you said something icky or if you did something icky, that there is no path for you to be a person, to be a human, right, in society. So I'm wondering, was there anything in that that, that cancel culture mentality that inspired you to uh, to kind of go down this approach for this article? Well, I think that's a stance I've always held. I actually wrote about that earlier this summer. You know, if you believe in restorative justice, you can't believe in cancel culture. They are totally Mm. at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I think that 
cancel culture is something that is kind of permeated in our society a lot of times by either very young or very immature people um, who don't really have a holistic idea of how to confront the problems our society faces and really work towards amends. Um, so I think it's a very childish approach. And unfortunately, it really did sort of have a moment there where a lot of people lived in fear. Uh, we've even seen polling, you know, that, that has shown to some extent um, Americans, I think 30% or so in each Democrat and Republican camp would actually fire somebody uh, for holding the opposing view on the presidency this wow. election. Yeah, I mean, that that's really crazy, right? That's not, these aren't people you want to be following anywhere, certainly on policy. Um, but I, I think that we do see a sort of movement against cancel culture, I guess kind of a tidal wave against it, where people are tired of it. They're recognizing how ridiculous it got, how absurd it was. Um, you know, when you're digging back in somebody's background and finding something they said or did when they were 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, they're kids, their brains aren't fully developed. When you're digging back and finding things or positions, policies they supported 30, 40 years ago, you know, times change. And as times change, we learn more. Our information grows. And, and hopefully as it grows, we develop and change and move with it. But you can't hold it against people for their former ignorance. You know, we should all hope that people have moved forward from where they used to be. And so I, I do hope that we're moving past that, that people are recognizing it. I think ultimately, you know, if you want people to come out of a certain lifestyle, which I, I think about this a lot, you know, there's a lot of um, concerning factions in our society, both on the right and left. You know, I'm deeply concerned by the rise of the alt-right and nationalists who I think do not hold um, consistent human ethics values and really don't value individual liberty. And I think you can say the same about people on the left with groups like Antifa and others. You know, we want people to come out of that. We want them to see the error of their ways. We want them to recognize they're wrong. But if the answer to that is, well, you're going to be fired or you're going to be unemployable or you're going to be removed from polite society, I think what you do is push those people further into the fringes of these groups that are sort of already on the outskirts of society and make them double down on these really har horrible views and beliefs that lean towards xenophobia and, and bigoted kind of views. And so um, we really do need to think about that when we're trying to uh, rectify things in our society. You know, if we don't want people to hold racist views, if we don't want people to, um, to be working against good policies that benefit all of us, then we need to have pathways forward for them to um, recognize when they've been wrong but then be welcomed in their path towards trying to move towards the right thing. And and that's something that I think both sides need to develop. No, oh, my God, I, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. And I think, you know, let's, let's kind of go back. I, and I, I hate to keep on going back to Oregon, just this, this idea of ending the war on drugs, but I think that is probably like the, the number one thing right now that we can see as a root of a lot of the systematic problems we've seen across the board in, in the way that we have our criminal justice system. But also when you look at, you know, I, mean, I had Caleb Franz on the show and uh, we were discussing when he was, um, you know, doing his, his reintegration project for the Milliberty Initiative and, and talking about how difficult it is for folks to actually get back into society uh, because they're carrying this negative stigma along with them. And again, it's all associated based on these preconceived notions that are built entirely on what government saying that a plant's illegal. And you were on our, again, good 
good friend Brad Palumbo has an amazing podcast, Breaking Boundaries. And Hannah, you were over there and you were discussing this um, specifically because you wrote a great article over at Fee um, about Oregon. And one of the, the quotes you had there on the show, and I'm going to say it verbatim, the Oregon vote where they decriminalized drugs was a massive achievement. It is what we needed in, in order to move, uh, in order to move drug use, which is a problem, addiction is a major problem out of our criminal justice system and put it in the health system. And that right there, right? So I think that's where libertarians have missed the marketing opportunity is to say it's not just, you know, one thing to say, oh yeah, we, we want to decriminalize drugs because obviously the stereotype libertarians are all potheads, right? But, no, we actually want to be able to allow people to look at this as a medical issue. It's not a criminal justice issue, right? This should be a medical issue. If you're if you're on, you know, some type of drug and you are dependent, my goodness, I would want you to want to be able to go get help and not feel that you are going to be put in a cage, you know, if if you meet a police officer from, you know, point A to point B. And I think that's exactly one of the the best steps we've seen in this 2020 election was the approach that Oregon was taking. Can you dig into that and also Focusing, again, how we can start to focus our attention towards the health systems going forward? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, in, in talking about that, I'm always reminded when these sort of issues come up of one of my favorite pieces of writing, uh, an essential thing that I think everybody should read, which is the short essay by F.A. Hayek, Why I Am Not a Conservative. And within it, he makes one of the greatest analogies I've ever come across where he compares progressivism to being a train that's on this track and the track leads right off a cliff and it's it's speeding full steam ahead. And conservatism is really just the brakes on that train. You know, they're constantly trying to slow it down, but they're always moving in the same direction. They don't have ideas for other approaches. They don't have their own train track. They're just trying to slow down the progressive train. And, and ultimately they end up where progressives are, you know, 10 years down the road. Um, and he says in, in that essay, classical liberalism, which in America we mostly call libertarianism, is the other alternate track, right? We do have other ideas to these problems. I actually get along with progressives great because we agree on so many issues. We have so much cross-collateralization. It's amazing. They just tend to fall on the idea of using big government solutions to address those problems. And they aren't aware of the free market alternatives. And when they're explained, I see so many of them grab onto it. Like, yeah, that's great. That sounds even better. They just haven't been presented with that. And I think one uh, way libertarians have failed is to do that education in our society, right? We kind of expect people to just get it or to already be there or to understand how things would work. And so you have a lot of people that will say, you know, in the war on drugs, in the war on drugs, in the war on drugs. And yeah, I agree. And I happen to know what the next steps would be to have alternative methods for dealing with addiction, but the average American doesn't. And we need to do a better job of very specifically painting a picture for them of what that looks like, what alternatives look like. The war on drugs has failed. There is no debate around that. I mean, maybe maybe a fringe person might try to argue it. I don't know on what data or what grounds. It has failed on every criteria you could possibly think to look at. It has failed, it has failed, it has failed. Um, but yet people double down on it because they don't know what else to do. They're not very imaginative or creative. And so you see these people that shouldn't be in office continue to just double down on the same failed things that have been failing for decades. And it's very frustrating. But I think, you know, again, the onerous has to be on us to come in and do a better job. And so in my work, 
one thing I always try to do is when I'm opposing a policy and saying no, I always want to have an alternate policy in place to show people what would work better. You know, we're not saying this isn't an issue. We're not saying that there shouldn't be something done about it. We're saying that it shouldn't be this approach and this is the better one, right? And so in my piece, that's what I'm trying to do. And I think Oregon is a great example of, um, of a situation that is a, a community people recognizing the war on drugs has failed. They've chosen to decriminalize all drugs there, not legalize. I've seen a lot of people very confused on that distinction this week. They've decriminalized the possession of drugs for small amounts of drugs. And um, for people who are caught with drugs over that amount, if they are caught committing petty crimes um, while under the throes of drugs, things of that nature, they will simply be diverted to a, basically a drug court uh, where they, instead of being met with legal professionals, will be met with uh, psychologists, sociologists, people who actually have some medical expertise. Um, they typically will be sent to some sort of a rehabilitation center. There will be treatment mats put into place and they will have um, the access to the actual care that they need to address the underlying root cause of the problem, which is addiction, right? Um, and so it is treating it like a health issue instead of a criminal one, which does nothing. All, all criminalization does is mean that we spend a shit ton of money to lock up nonviolent people. Um, they don't get help. They typically tend to still get drugs in jail. The most likely time for them to overdose is when they get out. We break their family relationships. We move them far away from their loved ones. That amplifies the, the things that feed addiction. Um, we, as a whole, make them unemployable. We make it very hard for them to succeed economically after they've been in jail. That pushes them into poverty. That fuels addiction. Everything we do is so asshat backwards. It shocks me that we haven't seen more states do something to change it yet because there are successful models out there. And um, in my piece, you know, I point to Portugal, which did this in 2001. They decriminalized all drugs. They were at the height of a heroin uh, addiction crisis in their country, and they decided to try an ultimate pathway and have seen tremendous success. They've seen overdose deaths go down about 60% during that time, and at the same time have seen enrollment in treatment and rehabilitation um, facilities go up 60%. They've seen um, far lower usage rates than most of Europe and drastically lower rates than the U.S. Um, they've seen um, HIV go down significantly from thousands of cases a year to only 70 so cases a year um, because people aren't trading needles and, and using them in that manner. And so they've just had a, a resounding success in this way. Um, but yet we've been so slow to follow good models and it's very frustrating. So I'm very excited about Oregon. I think it's a common sense approach. I think it speaks to the voters' knowledge. You know, just keep in mind, it wasn't the politicians leading this. This is the voters. This was a coalition that got this on the ballot and voters showed up for it. So um, I think, you know, we always say politics flows downstream from culture. The culture's there on this issue and has been there. It's the politicians that are in the way. So where does your average, I guess, libertarian candidate lose your average voter then? I guess, because that's that's elephant in the room. That's kind of what happened here. Um, or should I say liberty, our libertarian porcupine in the room? Um, because we didn't have the success we had back in 2016. Actually, we had, um, resounding not success relative to 2016. Again, that's not to, to go after the candidate, but I think maybe we weren't speaking to the issues really that people were, were concerned about. And, and to your point, Hannah, like all we have to really do is, is start to focus on, the people themselves, people are very, I think we, we don't, I think I, I'll be first to actually raise my hand here. I don't maybe give your average person enough credit because to your point, Oregon, it was the people. The people were the ones, not the politicians, uh, who said, no, we, we want to have 
you know, this, this decriminalization of drugs. And I think that actually kind of goes more towards the arguments for free markets, because when you see there is a demand, and in this case, it was the demand to decriminalize the drug that the people, they, they resoundingly will, you know, vote in this case it wasn't actual vote but i would say they would also vote with with their dollars um and and i goodness i I don't see why that's so it's so i guess hard for people to to wrap their brains around or maybe it's hard for libertarians to sell what do you think it is is it it a matter of of the messaging or is it matter just your average person out there beyond maybe places like oregon aren't open to the ideas of liberty as much as they were out there No, I think libertarian ideas are doing just swell, honestly. I mean, you see both major parties having to run on our talking points. They, of course, don't use them to govern once they're in office. But (laughs) they're popular. People like our views. People get them. Um, And I don't think the problem with the libertarian message is is the policy or the message at all. I think the problem has been, um, well, first and foremost, you know, I have, I have to take a little bit of an issue when people say that libertarianism isn't working. You know, people don't want it. People aren't voting for it. People aren't buying what you're selling. Um, that's, that's not totally true. You know, if you have even the remotest knowledge of our system, you'll know that there have been significant laws passed by the Democrats and Republicans for decades upon decades upon decades that have restricted ballot access. They've made it really difficult, very expensive, very um, high hurdles to get on the ballot as a libertarian. They've also done things to suppress funding for libertarians. They've done things to suppress knowledge of third parties, including blocking them from the debates. So it's kind of BS to say people don't want it. They're just rejecting it. No, they're they're suppressing the vote of third parties. Mm-hmm. This didn't- yeah accidentally happen. Americans overwhelmingly say that they want a third party option, even those who align with a certain party. So I don't buy that at all, first and foremost. But secondarily, you know, when you look at what's happened this year, you had an election where you had people at the top of the ticket on the Libertarian Party who did not have name recognition, right? They weren't big names. Um, Certainly, you saw a decrease in the visibility of the ticket from 2016, when you had two former Republican governors running on the ticket. And I think because of that, you didn't see the media cover it as much. They didn't get as much um, media exposure. They didn't get as many interviews. They just weren't in the press nearly as much as we saw the ticket um, was in 2016. So I think all of that contributes. And then on top of everything, I just think you had an election where the country was so divided this year. You know, people really did feel like they were voting for their rights, for their very, um, you know, bank accounts for like these very like vital things. And I don't know that that's typically what you find during an election. Certainly in my lifetime, I have not seen people really think that um, the election of the president has the ability to impact their lives in such stark ways. I don't necessarily agree that that was a a right assessment, but certainly that was the perception. And I just think it was a hard year to convince people to vote for a third party, knowing that um, there was so much contention between the two major party candidates. Yeah, and Trump, he he represents so much more than just GOP politics, right? Like there's there's a lot more emotion bottled up when you say the word Trump to somebody than than you would if you were to say Ronald Reagan, unless it's saying it to a Republican, in which case they say, yeah, like the the guy next to God, right? He's he's up there somewhere, and and that's I think maybe part of the problem that we had this year is exactly right. People were not voting necessarily for, in this case, you know, what they would say is their, their best interest, but rather the, against the worst case scenario. It's actually funny. I had, um, Ian Dunt. He's, uh, from over in the UK. Um, he's the editor of politics.uk.co. 
And that's ex- actually kind of the approach he was saying when he ever, he looks at politics was he, he's never had the luxury of voting for what he wants the most in a politician, but rather the politician who's going to prevent the worst outcome. And in his opinion, that candidate was Joe Biden in this past election, um, which actually is, is quite counter to, I would say, a lot of what you would see in America, the more libertarian wing. Um, but then I would say, actually, that's not necessarily true. Matt Welch just did a, a survey um, that showed your average libertarian voter who voted for Gary Johnson in 2016 actually ended up in, in quite large numbers voting for Joe Biden. So uh, I guess mm-hmm. then I would I would ask you, Hannah, because that's an interesting number to me, right, to hear that, to hear that we're actually seeing more libertarians voting for the Democratic candidate. Do you think that that was more based on that case of voting against the worst possible outcome in Trump? Or do you think that maybe your average libertarian voter does have some more sympathies with your more democratic candidates? No, I think that I think the vast majority of people this election cycle were voting for or against Trump. It really was a personality driven election. Um, I think as a whole, you know, as a, as a person who is pretty in the middle of libertarianism, like I don't really find myself on as a left, right libertarian. I feel, I just really agree with the party platform as a whole. Um, but I think, um, if you're trying to evaluate which candidate had more libertarian policies, it was a mixed bag, right? Like, I think if you were looking at Joe Biden, definitely you could feel you were going to get better civil liberties actions that you were maybe going to have an open door on things like immigration, definitely far, far greater criminal justice reform. You know, Trump has touted criminal justice reform, but he's really doubled down on some of the worst aspects, including the death penalty. Um, So I don't think most people buy that he's some great criminal justice reformer. And while I think a lot of people are skeptical of Joe Biden, given his background, I think they know his party is more likely to hold him to the line on that. Um, but as a whole, you know, I think you were going to get better economic policies under Trump. And so it, it, it'd be really hard to say who was better for libertarians in that sense. And that's why I really think it was driven more by wanting to get Trump out of office. Um, he's an extremely divisive character. I think, at um, you know, just a very human level, people don't like being represented by someone who behaves in that manner. Um, I think for a lot of people, they had major character issues with him. Um, and so this was a unique election in that way. And I don't know that you would typically find libertarians crossing over to the left that much. Um, it's important to remember that a lot of Republicans cross over to the left in this election, especially Republican suburbs have, have gone over to the Democrats under um, the Trump administration. And, and, you know, I really don't know what's going to happen with the two major parties. I don't know if these shifts will go back after Trump or if we're really seeing a permanent shift in the parties as we formerly saw in the 1960s in this country where we're going to have very different dividing lines moving forward. So that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. But um, I certainly think this election is an outlier. It's really I'm curious, too, because if this if this really has been right, the kind of restructuring of the parties, the GOP's kind of taken on this blue collar worker party, and the Democratic Party has kind of taken this big city elitist approach. And it's weird because I remember, you know, just rewind like what twenty years ago, and it was like the exact opposite. Um, that was kind of the flip mentality, and it's it's interesting to see how things, you know, they they do. Um, definitely flip back and forth, except for the Libertarian Party. Here we are. We're always principled. We're always in third place. Yes. Um, so I guess, um, you know, going forward, 
if we are going to have some Libertarian Party success, now I've had Brad Palumbo on the show, I had Angel McArdle, she's running against um, Joe Bishop Henchman uh, in 2022 uh, for the LP chair, and I asked him, I said, hey, what, you know, who do you think we could have run going in, into 2024, I guess, to be a good candidate? Brad believes we, we need to run a celebrity. So he's mentioning, you know, somebody like The Rock, but obviously The Rock, he he voted for uh, for Biden. So he might not maybe get the libertarian votes that he would think he would. But hey, who knows? Um, I was talking to, to Angela. She said maybe like somebody like Rob Schneider. I mean, I I guess. What are your thoughts? Is there anybody out there on your, your short list of celebrities for 2024 that maybe would make sense as a libertarian candidate? Yeah. And, you know, Brad and I have talked about this. I think Brad has great instincts. So I always am interested to hear his opinion. And certainly I, I don't think it's a bad idea at all if we could find a good libertarian um, celebrity to run. I, I'm i a bit pessimistic on the likelihood of it. I came from the music industry, so I've worked in entertainment. There's mm. not a lot of libertarians in that world. Um, and, you know, it's not just any celebrity. I think that's uh, a bit of a... Uh, open door can of worms that we've seen play out with Trump that, you know, you want somebody who actually really is committed and principled and can uh, articulate and message our values in a correct way. So um, I, I love the idea. I don't know who it would be. Um, but on my short list, I still have Justin Amash right at the top. I think Justin Amash is the smartest person I've ever met. I think he is absolutely principled. He's a great communicator. He's really, really good at um, helping people understand what's going on behind the scenes, helping them see how the hand moves. And I really have learned a lot from him over the years. I think he'd be a tremendous person to help really get out front on the libertarian side to help uh, better articulate and message our beliefs and values. And I think he does it in a way, um, like we were discussing earlier, where he really does show what better alternatives would be or, or why the um, the current approach is so so devastating and doesn't work. So I'd love to see him. But, you know, as a whole, I really don't agree with some of the strategy of the libertarians in recent years. I think that we need to quit focusing on the presidency. I mean, I think it's great to run a presidential candidate and try to get exposure and all of that, you know, is fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, that's that is such an uphill battle. And as I mentioned, there are real regulations in place that will keep it so. And I think what we actually need to see happen is for libertarians to start getting elected locally. And they've not done that very successfully. You know, I don't, I want to see libertarians in city councils and on school boards. Oh my gosh, on school boards, that would make a huge difference. I want to see them in state houses and state senates. Like that's where libertarians need to run. Those are cheap races. There's often not a ton of competition for them. Those offices have the ability to make so much more of an impact on people's day-to-day -day lives than even the presidency does. And I've, I've really not understood why there hasn't been a more concerted effort to get people elected at that level. And, and I think until you do that and really start having people that can grow in their leadership from that position and then move up to run for Congress or Senate or president, it's just not going to be seen as a serious movement um, by a lot of people. And I think that that would be an achievable uh, approach. I think Young Americans for Liberty has done an awesome job at that. They've gotten almost 200 state house members elected across this country who are either Republicans or Libertarians, but always who pass their survey of kind of liberty type values. You know, they're making sure and vetting these guys, making sure they agree on some core issues before they support their candidacy. And then they're going out and they're, they're knocking doors and they're raising awareness for them. And they're seeing incredible 
um, tremendous success. I wish we could see more of that from libertarians in general. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward because I'm I'm having Cliff on the show back or uh, coming up here in, in December, and we're going to talk about some of the wins because I think you're 100 right-handed. That's where we need to focus. Right? Is yes, focusing local. Which actually, it's funny enough. Angela McArdle was just on the show the episode before you, and she said the exact same thing. That's actually one of her main planks as a LP uh, chair candidacy. Um, but yeah, we, we not only do we need to focus local, but I do think that's because we need to build that resume, right? Once we get those people into office, then people will take them seriously. But then I'll ask to allow my Republican friends out there and, and Democrat friends, if you want to see things get better, then we need you to start voting different, right? We need you guys to take a take a leap of faith. And and hey, I I promise you, if you give us like you know at least ten to fifteen years of of voting libertarian in your community, you're going to see a positive difference. If you don't like it. Okay, we can have that conversation when we get there, but I can almost guarantee you, you will. So, with that being said, Hannah, you obviously are, are doing so much amazing work. Fee, Newsmax, Washington Examiner. Talk to me. Where where else can folks go ahead and follow you, stay up to date with all that's going on? Yeah, so I'm really excited. I've added a lot of commentary and writing this year. As I mentioned, I've been off the road for work, so I've had a lot of spare time. It's been nice to get to really hone in and create and, and really get to kind of build out an intellectual sort of side hobby. So um, I have a fellowship with Fee now, which I'm thrilled about. I, I kind of came up reading Fee and they were really fundamental in helping me shape my economic beliefs. So I'm thrilled to be writing for them. People can um, check that out. Foundation for Economic Education, Fee is their acronym. Um, they're all over Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, and they just have tremendous content um, as a whole, really great scholars there. So that's a great place. I am a Newsmax insider, so they can look at my blog there, which is Life and Liberty. Um, I'm also a contributor for the Washington Examiner, and I just launched a new podcast called Based, and it is a monthly series coming out the last Monday of every month, and it's available on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Spotify, and it's called Based with Hannah Cox. And you have a Substack too, don't you? I do, and I have Substack. Yes, look at also, that. I'm a good also, host. How about that? I remembered things. I'm forgetting all my outlets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about this? Just to make make it easier for the audience, I'll make sure I include all those links there, Hannah, for all the uh, locations folks can go ahead and find you because obviously you're doing great work over there, and we encourage you as, as you have more great stuff coming out to please give us a call here on the Brian Nichols Show. We'll have you on talk all about it. Thanks so much, Brian. Always good to join you. A quick read from our new sponsor, and that is the Expat Money Show. Now, if you are a longtime listener or even a relatively new listener here on the Brian Nichols Show, then you remember our good friend Mikkel Thorup from the Expat Money Show. What an episode to learn that just because you were born in one country doesn't mean that you have to pay your taxes there forever to do your banking there or to have your investments there, raise your family there, or even have your companies register there, learn there, get your kids educated there, or even live your life there. How about that? You can go ahead and live your life wherever it is you see fit, because the Expat Money Show, which is hosted by our friend Mikkel Thorup, originally started as a podcast, but has grown to a worldwide community of entrepreneurs who are living international location independent lifestyles. Mikkel is focused on helping you live an international life by looking at problems through the lens of global solutions. In this day and age, there is no reason you should let borders get in the way of having the best the world has to offer. So, Brian Nichols Show audience, head over to the Expat Money Show today. Give Mikkel a subscribe, a fantastic show, and tell him 
the Brian Nichols sent you. Alrighty, guys, let's start my conversation up with Hannah Cox here on the Brian Nichols Show. Please do me a favor. Make sure you go ahead and support all the phenomenal work that Hannah is doing. And guys, honestly, this is how we do it, right? Corporate media, corporate press, they are not our friends, and they've made that a point. Uh, they've shown, uh, you know, Brian Stelter saying, if you're going to organizations like Parler, you're, you're just, you're a threat to the democracy. Or it's like, hey, we, we've been trying to have conversations on other platforms, and you just won't let us have those conversations. We're going to an independent third party. Maybe you should, you know, give us a chance to actually have a platform and, and let us talk openly. But alas, they are not. They're pushing us out. And, and with that being said, we have to make sure we're doing our part supporting independent media. So if you appreciate the work that Hannah's doing, you appreciate the work that I'm doing here at The Brian Nichols Show, please do us a favor. Go ahead. Give us the uh, the subscribes, please. It helps us get more eyeballs on the content we're producing. But also... If you could please financially support us where you can, uh, you know, at the We Are Libertarians Patreon, uh, you know, support Hannah at, over at her Substack, and so on and so forth. We, we definitely need to make sure we're putting our money where our mouths are. So with that being said, guys, please do me a favor, share today's episode with family and friends. Tag me at B Nichols Liberty, Twitter, Facebook, Minds.com, and yes, Parlor.com at B Nichols Liberty. Give me that five-star rating and review if you'd be so kind over on Apple Podcast. Take a screenshot of said review. Email me, brian at briannicholsshow.com. With that screenshot, you'll be entered into our Ebels Freeze Gel giveaway. And it is some A-plus Ebels CBD topical freeze gel. Helps with aches and pains, mitigating the pain, managing the pain. It's so, so, so chic. As uh, who's it? Ferris Bueller says, it, it shows. it's so chic. So guys, that's all I really had for today's episode. Looking ahead here as we go to Friday, Larry Sharp returns to the program. Larry Sharp, 2018 Libertarian Party gubernatorial candidate. He helps us make the distinction, activists versus candidates. How do we be the best version of each of those roles? And would that actually make some long-lasting impact? Larry Sharp here on Friday. So make sure you hit that notification button. Don't miss a single episode. With that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Hannah Cox. We'll see you Friday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.